Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 18. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I've done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed his God. We return to Daniel. And you'll remember at the beginning of the chapter, it began with a hostile plan against Daniel. His enemies failed to find something in his life that could be used against him in order to remove Daniel from his position of authority and influence. And by the way, each and every one of you is in a position of authority and influence. You are going to be influencing your family, your friends, and the world around you, either for good or for evil. The accusers of Daniel concocted a scheme to trap him by using his commitment to prayer and worship, by making it illegal to pray to any god or any man except the king for a period of 30 days. Darius is tricked into signing the decree in verses 6 through 9. Daniel, knowing the decree, continues his daily routine of prayer and worship to the Lord in verse 10. Daniel's devilish foes are singing with joy because they can't wait to report him to the king and insist that he be punished according to the law in verses 11 through 13. King Darius, knowing that he's been tricked into signing the decree that would impose the death penalty on Daniel, seeks again to find some loophole to rescue him. And unable to find that loophole, the king reluctantly orders Daniel's arrest. And then he's lowered into the den of lions in verses 14 through 15. And the king is going to spend a sleepless night as he contemplates Daniel's fate. Now and again, I want to remind you of something. Daniel at this time in his life is a very old man. Now, by very old man, I mean in his mid-80s. And if you're in your mid-80s, good on you. 
He's no spring chicken. For many people and scholars, they're thinking, well, Daniel's probably done something, or he's covered himself with some sort of anti-lion repellent, or the lions are thinking he's just good for lion jerky. <laughs> that he's so... That he's nothing but, <laughs> but, but bone and, and gristle. No, no lion's going to want him. He spent his life in captivity. He spent his life separating himself from sin, honoring God, praying towards Jerusalem. He lived in Babylon and he lived where his country sent him. But his life was committed to the realization that a Messiah was going to come to Jerusalem and that God's promises were going to be true. He lived his life serving his Lord, serving his country. And I want to remind you of something, that that morning began with an enemy's deception. And at noon, the king's decision. And by night, he would be experiencing God's personal power and God's personal presence and God's personal deliverance and protection. The contrast couldn't be more stark in the text. You have a king in anxiety and distress and a prophet in peace and safety. The king has labored in vain to save Daniel from judgment. He is helpless to circumvent his own law. Anxiety, by the way, creates a place of torment. And some of you are not immune as you think about your future. Because your future, as it unfolds, might seem uncertain. In our story, I want you to ask yourself a question. Who's the real king and who's the real slave? Because guess what? God's grace and God's mercy and God's peace and God's promises provide something for the person who has decided to let that rule their life. Daniel has made a choice. He would rather die obeying God's word than live outside of God's will. You should mark that. Daniel has made the choice. He would rather obey God's word than live outside of God's will. And each and every one of you are going to have to make that decision every single day. And in order to make that decision, you have to know what God's will is. And you have to be willing to embrace it. Now we understand how Daniel's nominated and then he gains entrance into the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 with notables like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the parents of Moses and Moses and Joshua and Rahab. So much so, the saints who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33. 
And of course, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, Satan comes. He comes like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He uses our enemies to seek to destroy us, attacking our mind and our bodies and sometimes our families. The Lord can and will protect and deliver his children from danger, but sometimes that protection and deliverance isn't always according to the mechanism that we would pick for ourselves. But make no mistake about it, the Lord will act always according to his will, according to grace, according to mercy, according to his sovereignty. And like Daniel, the exercising of this faith and trust is going to require patience. And it's going to require courage. And it's going to require a heartfelt confidence in, in trusting the Lord. And now all of a sudden, as we've been looking at the book of Daniel, and we see him separating himself from sin, and now, now devoting himself to the Lord, it's in that separation and devotion that courage comes as you walk into a future that you know is certain. And so look at the king's distress and anxiety. Look again in verse 18. Now the king went to his palace and he spent the night fasting and no musicians were brought before him and his sleep went from him. Now remember in our last study, we noted the king's decision and distress. It continues from verses 16 and 17. The king gave the command. They brought Daniel in verse 16. They cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke saying to Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. The king is disturbed and distressed on several different levels. Why is the king so upset? The king knows that Daniel is wise and that he's good and that he's godly and he's trustworthy. It makes sense in our limited understanding that when someone does something weird or wrong, that sometimes bad things happen. I wasn't shocked or surprised over the weekend when, when I read the newscast that Whitey Bulger was killed in prison. And I'm going, you know what? Things happen. If you're a member of a, a mob crime family and you order 11 people executed and you steal millions of dollars and you wind up in jail, sometimes bad things happen. But Daniel's none of those things. He's good. He's godly. He's trustworthy. Some of you have children and grandchildren. You have husbands and wives who have been honorable and faithful and they face difficulties and circumstances and you ask the question, why? Daniel is innocent. 
Technically, he's broken the king's law, but the law is unfair and unjust and plain stupid. And this was the other reason for the king's distress and anxiety. The king is duped into signing a law, making a decree that would make it impossible for Daniel to exercise his God-given responsibility to love the Lord, obey the Lord, pray to the Lord. The government leaders tricked the king into appealing to his vanity under the guise of, of being good citizens in an opportunity to pledge their loyalty to the king. But that wasn't their true desire. What they really wanted to do was to destroy Daniel. No wonder the, the king can't eat or sleep. And by the way, the word fasting is interesting in the original language. The Aramaic language and the Hebrew root word are very, very similar. It means to cover the mouth. And so the image in the text is you cover your mouth, hence fasting. So the fast was traditionally a time to abstain from food in order to pursue spiritual disciplines like self-evaluation and repentance from sin. Fasting isn't simply the decision that I'm not going to eat, but I'm not going to eat in order to pursue God. I suspect that this king isn't making the decision to fast in order to pursue God, even though he might be crying out to the God of Daniel. As he is increasingly beginning to believe in the God of Daniel. But it could be that he is covering his mouth because his stomach is so full of anxiety that the thought of what's happening to Daniel wants to make him throw up. And in an age of smartphones and TV and internet and radio, his version of entertainment is live musicians. And he won't listen to them. He doesn't want to hear from anyone or anything. He doesn't want to be distracted and again, on Tuesday, if you haven't voted, you should vote. Because people are going to make laws that are going to honor God or dishonor God. People are going to make laws and we're going to elect leaders who are going to make it easier for us to serve the Lord or more difficult to serve the Lord. I'm not here to tell you who to vote for or what to vote for on the individual items that are on your ballot. All I'm asking you to do is this, pray. If, you if you've already voted, good on you. If you haven't voted, just pray and say, Lord, give me wisdom as I have to make the difficult choice of the decisions that are going to be made. But I'm hoping that in the back of the, your mind that there's two things that come to the forefront. Is what's being suggested honoring to God or dishonoring to God? Has this person made public his or her commitment to honor God or dishonor God. And you might say, well, you can't make decisions based on that. I do make decisions based on that. Almost every decision I make is based on that. At least I try to. And so, in an age of distraction, this king decides there's no diversions. 
And in verse 19, look what it says. Then the king arose very early in the morning, just like you did, huh? Because of the time change. You're going, what? What's happening here? I got a free hour. And you wake up at 4.30 this morning and you're going, what? What's going on? I'm wide awake. No wonder he can't sleep. He is wide awake. When the king arose early, it would seem that the break of day is the earliest possible time that the king allows himself to visit the prophet in the place of punishment. The trial or the ordeal is now over. And by the way, in the ancient world, there were things called the trials of ordeal. They were in part meant to discover the guilt or the innocence of an accused party. The thought behind the trial of ordeal is that the victim, if the victim survived and was innocent, well, if the victim survived, they're innocent. If they didn't survive, they're guilty. Now, again, you might be doing the math and going, hey, you know, guilt or innocence in a lion's den doesn't seem a fair way to evaluate a just way to go forward. I know, here's what we'll do. We'll hand him over to the lions, and if the lions eat him, he was guilty. If the lions don't eat him, he's innocent. You know what? It's like the Salem witch trials. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a 2,000-pound rock. We're going to wrap you in that rock. We're going to throw you into the lake. If you float, you're innocent. If you sink to the bottom, you're guilty. And again, you're thinking, you know what? This doesn't, again, seem to be the fairest way to evaluate how to go forward. But the thought behind the ordeal was that if the person was spared, if there was some deity that intervened with a supernatural miracle, then that would be proof positive that you had earned the God's or God's favor. But the king is not an idiot. It's not logical or probable that anything is left of Daniel other than bones and gristle and shredded clothing. And in verse 20, look what it says. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lion's den? Or from the lions. And the king's cry in the text is a lament. That is a word that's used to describe great sorrow, great pain, great anguish. But it is a lament that seems to be mixed with a modest dose of hope, sleep deprivation, and tears will often make conversation compelling. And what do we find in the king's cry? I want you to notice the title he assigns to the prophet. He calls him servant of the living God. And I love that because that's exactly his public testimony. And again, for the person who is wondering whether or not 
faith and commitment and accountability is something private and something simply for your home. I hope that you're starting to awaken to Daniel's public testimony. He's known by the world in which he lives as a lover and a believer and a servant of the living God. And this king uses that term very specifically, the living God. In what sense? As opposed to all of the dead and lifeless deities that lay claim to the Medo-Persian loyalties. And again, I know that some of you are struggling. And you're wondering whether or not God really is alive. Whether or not there's a living God. And according to the Bible, Jesus came and he took on a second nature, a human nature. And he died a horrible death on a cross and he rose from the dead. False gods are lifeless. And when you place your trust in something that is false, it's going to leave you empty. And sometimes you're going to be met with the same circumstance that Peter and the rest of the disciples were met with when Jesus was basically said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can't have eternal life. And the religious Jews were deeply offended at his suggestion of cannibalism. And he looked at his followers. He said, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else can we go? Where else can we find the words of life? We may not know or understand everything that's going on. But here are our options. Life with Jesus or life apart from Jesus. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 26, it says, For who is there of all the flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? In Isaiah 37, verses 15 through 20, it contains this brief but beautiful prayer of Hezekiah about the faithfulness of God who dwells between the cherubim, God alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, the maker of heaven and earth, the God who hears, the God who sees, the God who hears and sees the words of enemies, who casts the gods of stone and wood into the fire and destroys them. He prays to that God. He prays that the God of Israel will deliver him and his people from the hands of Shennacherib. And the Lord answers his prayer by promising that after three years, ravaged Judah would return to normal and that Jerusalem would be spared in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 30. In other words... There is this God, this living God, this God who hears and responds to prayer. And so, again, was this king familiar with the events of chapter 3? Did Darius hear the strange tales of the deliverance of the children of Israel from the fiery furnace? Was he aware of the bold statement by Daniel's friends, quote, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. There is a wicked king who wants to assert his will. And there is a beneficent king who understands what's going on and how people are trying to undermine the process of what is good and helpful. Did the king wonder? 
If Daniel had displeased God in some way, did he spend the night going, you know, Daniel has this public perception of being a guy who is separate from sin and who loves the Lord, but I wonder if he said something or did something to antagonize and alienate God. And the only way that you're going to understand what I'm talking about is if you've ever experienced a setback. It might be mentally or emotionally or physically or financially. Some deep difficulty in your mind and you're wondering whether or not you did something to antagonize and alienate God. And whether or not you're being punished by God. And the truth, sometimes it's evident. But sometimes it isn't. Sometimes we don't have all of the information and we can't draw the right conclusion because we don't have sufficient information. It suggests that we know something that we don't know. But the king comes. And look at verse 21. Then Daniel said to the king, can you imagine? O king, live forever. <laughs> My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. How could you not be glad for Daniel? How can you not rejoice when you have a child in utero and all of a sudden the doctors say, we think we fixed the problem? How can you not rejoice when there's a diagnosis of cancer and you hear the person utter the words, I'm cancer free? How can you not rejoice when people have been walking through a pit of unemployment or financial difficulty and you discover that they have a job and they can feed their family? How can you not rejoice? It says, <laughs> he was taken up out of the pit, out of the den. No injury whatever was found on him. What? No gnaw marks? No, not even a little bite? from a lion who goes, I'll just take a tiny taste of Daniel just to see whether or not he might be worth eating. Well, he believed in his God. Now again, I want you to think about this just for a moment. How has Daniel spent the night? You might be thinking, I don't know. Because what you might be thinking is, how would I spend the night? How would I spend the night? Would I find a little corner in the hopes that a lion doesn't stick his or her big hairy head right next to mine? Would you, would you be thinking as I'm looking at the lion eye to eye, I see his yellow teeth, I see saliva coming from the sides of his mouth, and I hear at first just a simple... <clears throat> And you're wondering whether or not he's going to open his mouth. 
How has he spent the night? Is it in fear and terror? We actually would have no clue except for he gives us a clue. God sent his angel. God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. By the way, what would be the first words out of your mouth for the person who placed you into the lion's den? Would it be an act of kindness and graciousness? Would it be the formal conversation that takes place in those circumstances? Oh, king, live forever. Yes, I'm still alive. What is Daniel's testimony concerning God's divine protector? There's several things that I just want to quickly bring to your attention. Number one, the protector is powerful. God. Number two, the protector is personal. He says, my God. And number three, the protector is present. He sent his angel. Now, again, I want you to just be thinking about this just for a moment. I'm fairly convinced that God sent Jesus in a pre-incarnate manifestation in the Bible, this term is known as a theophany or a Christophany. It's where God himself shows up or Jesus shows up. He goes by that specific name, the angel of the Lord. And again, Jesus is present. It's one thing to be in the midst of this horrible situation, but it's another thing to experience the very presence of Jesus when you're in the sickness, when you're receiving the treatment, when you're in the hospital, when you're pouring over the bills, when you're wondering whether or not you're going to be able to make ends meet. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and deliver him. I'm going to suggest to you this same Daniel who as a teenager separates himself from sin and then who devotes himself into in, in, to his Lord, now that he's crept into his mid-80s, he understands the reality that there is a God who's made promises and he keeps promises and he doesn't know everything about everything, but just like his friends who had experienced deliverance in the midst of the fiery furnace, he was content. It's amazing what you can go through if you know Jesus is with you. It's amazing what you can go through if Jesus is present. The Lord could have killed the lions. The Lord could have caused the lions' mouths to remain shut. The, the, the Lord could have caused the lions to smell something that smelled so awful that they wouldn't dare touch Daniel. But I want you to note something. The Lord doesn't kill the lions and he doesn't offer some sort of aromatic solution, God himself shows up. The Lord is present with Daniel in the den. The pre-incarnate Jesus will keep him company. The pre-incarnate Jesus will spend the night with him. 
the Lord sent his angel. And Daniel lists three reasons why God in his grace and mercy delivers Daniel. The first, look what he says, because I was found innocent before him. The second, I've done no wrong before you. That is, Daniel's actions have brought no harm to the kingdom or the king. And number three, because he believed in his God, verse 22, he makes the statement, I am innocent, I am harmless, and it's evidenced in faithfulness. By the way, scholars are divided over the meaning, I was found innocent before him. You might be wondering, well, what's there to argue about? Well, some suggest that this is a reference to Daniel's manner of living or lifestyle. In other words, he's blameless. And we've used that over and over again. In the Bible, there seems to be only three people where there's nothing ever bad ever said about them. Joseph, in the book of Genesis, as he is taken captive and placed in a prison and then delivered from that prison and then made ruler over Egypt, the second person is Daniel and the third person is Jesus. So, is it a reference to his lifestyle? In the opening chapter, remember, I already shared with you, Daniel determines to live a life separated from sin, devoted to God in chapter 1, verses 8 through 16. Very rarely when people are experiencing great difficulty and they come to me and they ask the question, why is this happening to me? I've never said to them, have you lived a life separate from sin and devoted to God? I can't bring myself to ask the question because I know that the answer is usually going to be no. And so it immediately implies a judgment. You mean this is happening to me because I've done something wrong or I said something or I did something. And again, I don't have enough information to know the truth about that. But again, in the evil plot against Daniel, his enemies found neither fault nor charge in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Remember, Daniel's arrested for praying in verses 10 and 11. So some see this as a reference to Daniel's firm resolve to trust God in life's most difficult circumstance. It may contain all of these elements. It might include all of these things. Separation from sin, devotion to God, dedication to excellence, submission to the sovereignty of God in his life. He's remarkable. He's remarkable in a world full of unremarkable people. He's courageous in a world where most people won't make the decision to separate from sin. They'll continue in their sin. They won't make the decision to devote themselves to the Lord. They'll do their duty, obligation, but it's not a deep 
commitment that's born from the transformation of gratitude that comes because you've had a genuine encounter with the Lord Jesus. Daniel is no source of harm to the king. The government officials plotted and manipulated the king, read the law. By manipulating the king, they're manipulating the law. And think about what's going on in the text. They're manipulating the king and they're manipulating the law in order to bring about some sort of renaissance of love and loyalty and patriotism. Or is it because they're gunning for Daniel and they want Daniel gone? You know what's the truth. They hate him and they want him gone. And your adversary, Satan, like a roaring lion, hates you. And he wants to see you gone. And he will utilize whatever he thinks that he can get away with to undermine God's plan for you, God's will for you. And again, don't miss the phrase, the king orders Daniel to be taken up and out. Or, so Daniel was taken up and out. You know what I love about that statement? There's an end to the trial. There's an end to the trial. Trials typically have a beginning. They typically have a middle. They typically have an end. And what happens when Daniel's delivered? The king is exceedingly glad when he discovers that Daniel is safe and sound in verse 23. What else happens? Daniel's taken out of the den. That means he's removed from the place of danger. And no injury, whatever, was found on him. I love that phrase. You know what I see in the text? It's like a mother who inspects a child after they've fallen off the play at the swing at the playground or, or some horrible thing. I, I imagine the king inspecting Daniel for claw marks and bite marks. Let me just look at you. Let me check you out. Boy, are you old. <laughs> Maybe that's what saved you. It reminds me. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Who says advertising doesn't work? <laughs> plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief. And I'm so relieved. In spite of their best efforts to kill Daniel, God's not finished with Daniel. And in spite of Satan's best efforts, to destroy your marriage, to destroy your country, to destroy you, to undermine your family, to undermine your friends, to undermine God's plan and purpose. God's not finished with you. <laughs> We're reminded of Paul's convincing cry in the book of 
Romans chapter 8 verse 1, if God is for us, who can be against us? The writer of Proverbs says, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand in Proverbs chapter 19 verse 21. So what happens? What happens in your life and in my life when the miracle doesn't show up? This last week, my friend Lee Strobel was on my radio program. We were talking about his book, The Case for Miracles. And he wrote, quote, as I was researching this question, I realized that any credible book on miracles has to deal with the ones that never happen. Many people have implored God to meet an urgent need in their lives with no miracle forthcoming. There are biblical reasons that we shouldn't be surprised when everyone isn't healed in each and every instance. Even Jesus didn't heal automatically. Nevertheless, the emotional punch of this issue still stings, unquote. And I read the last chapter of the book that features my friend, Doug Grotis, who's spoken from this pulpit. As he marches into a future, as his wife is diagnosed with a debilitating degenerative disease that robs her of her mind and her ability to speak and think and function. And it's bad enough that it happens, but Rebecca happened to be a genius, a literal card-carrying member of Mensa. She was a person who separated herself from sin and devoted her life to Christ. And they prayed for her healing. And they prayed. And they prayed. And there was no healing. And Lee Strobel asked Doug Grotice, if you were God... Would you heal her? And Doug's answer was remarkable, stunning, breathtaking, overwhelming. He said, no. And Lee puzzled, said, why not? And Dr. Doug Grotai said, because your question implies that I would know everything that God knows. I would have his perfect judgment. I would have his perfect vision. I would have his perfect perspective. I would have his perfect goodness. I would have his perfect knowledge. I would know everything about everything. And because I knew everything about everything and both the intended and the unintended consequences, then that means I would come to the same judgment that God has come to. And this seems to be the judgment that God has come to. It's hard when you don't know everything about everything. And you cry and you beg and you plead. And you wonder where your miracle is. And you wonder whether or not you can trust God. The children of Israel are delivered from the fiery furnace. Daniel is delivered from the lion's den. But what about me? What about you? And Lee Strobel wrote, 
He said, someone once told me that God took the most horrible thing that has ever happened, the death of his son, Jesus, the most wicked and horrible and disgusting mark against humanity, the, the death, the torture of Jesus, his brutal slaying, and he takes the most horrific and horrible thing that has ever happened, and he uses that as the mechanism whereby your sins can be forgiven, and you can be reconciled with God, and you can experience his love and relationship with him, and mercy from him, and the promise of eternal life. If God can take the most horrible thing that has ever happened and make it the most transformative thing that could ever happen, then now all of a sudden you might be able to entertain the notion that God can take your difficult circumstance and use it for his glory. Amen. One of the great themes in the Bible is trusting God. In Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 we read, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and, and he'll make your paths straight. Daniel's intellect almost certainly was at the top of everyone in the world. He was head and shoulder above his peers. If anyone had the right to lean on his own understanding, it was Daniel. But Daniel doesn't attempt to think his way out of danger. There's only one way that he's going to come out of this lion's den line. He's going to have to trust the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind. Daniel will trust him. He's going to allow the Lord to make the path and forge the way out of the difficulty. Let me be clear. The Bible doesn't trivialize or denigrate understanding. Understanding is important, but obedience is more important. I, almost more than anyone else that I know, I want to know, I want to understand everything. But I don't. God understands everything completely. Understanding is important. But trusting God is more important. That might shock you or surprise you. It might annoy you. But it doesn't annoy you. I'm going to suggest as much as it annoys me. So what does it mean to trust him? What does it mean to seek him? What does it mean to believe that he is powerful and personal and present? It means that we seek his will in everything that we do. We fear him. That means we respect him. It means that we turn from evil and we gain renewed strength. It means that our life becomes very much like Daniel's life. We 
turn from our sin and we turn to the Lord and we understand that sometimes in great difficulty we're going to be placed in times of testing. We honor him with our substance. We don't despise his discipline. We don't lose sight of good planning. We refuse to wrong our neighbor. We refuse to envy the wicked. And again, the writer of Psalms in Psalm 37 verse 5 gives us this insight. He says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. When the Bible says trust in him and he will act, you will trust him or you won't. We all make choices. And when we have an important decision to make, we sometimes feel like we can't trust anybody, not even God. And you may be in that circumstance in your life where you are terrified of trusting the Lord. But you know you should. I'm going to invite you to do something that might seem difficult. I'm going to invite you to honestly pray, Lord, I don't trust you, but I want to. I want to. And if you mean that, he will hear you. Satan desires that you remain ignorant of God's will, or that you become impatient with God's will, or you act independently of God's will. Or be condemned because you have already knowingly, willfully disobeyed God. And now the haunting consequences are coming to bear. But I want you to know that there's a good God, a loving God, a merciful God who's willing to hear you and to forgive you and to reconcile you to himself. Satan will sometimes attack the mind like he did with Eve. Or the body like he did with Job. Or he'll attack your heart and your conscience like he did with David. And his weapons include lying and suffering and pride and accusation. But Daniel purposed in his heart from his youth that he was going to separate himself from sin and devote himself to God. And he knew that separation from sin and devotion to God would sometimes result in testing. But then the Lord showed up in power and in person. It's so hard for you to believe what I'm about to say, but I'm going to tell you. The Lord truly knows what's best. Your heavenly father loves you and is literally working all things together for your good. Bring your problems to the Lord. Be open to his instruction. 
He'll lead you and guide you. He'll make your paths straight. I have a friend who sings a song. He is my defense. I will not be moved. He is my defense. I will not be moved. He is my defense. I will not be moved. Your defense, it's the word of God. It's the grace of God. It's the spirit of God. It's the son of God interceding at the right hand of the father at this very moment. We're going to have communion here. And what I want you to do as Carolyn and the worship team comes up, I want you to pray. For those of you who trust him, tell him that you trust him. For those of you who don't trust him, admit it. And then beg him to give you a heart that sincerely wants to trust him. And for those of you who are struggling, and unlike Daniel, you still find yourself in the pit and all you wanted is to be lifted out. I'm going to pray that that's exactly what's going to happen. Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women. I pray for the circumstance that they find themselves in. Lord, we all find ourselves trusting you or not trusting you. And Lord, we remember Jesus, who on the night that he was betrayed, he knew that he was going to walk into a lion's den. And that the religious leaders and Satan would take him and crush him in the most difficult and painful of deaths imaginable. And yet he prays a prayer with his disciples. He takes a cup. He passes it to his disciples and he says, take this and drink it, all of you. This is my blood which will be shed for you. And again, the Bible says that he took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks and praise. And he says, this is my body which will be broken for you and do this in remembrance of me. For those of us who sometimes cry Lord, you don't understand what's going on in my life. You don't understand the pain. You don't understand the persecution. You don't understand the problem. You don't understand the crushing weight. And then we look to Jesus and we look at the cross and we set aside our tantrum. And we realize that no one knows better than you that Jesus is no stranger to pain and crushing. And so Lord, it is with ex 
temptation. That in drinking this juice and eating this bread, that we're not only renewing our love and our loyalty to you, but we want it to be a declaration of trust. That we trust you with our heart, with our minds, with our decision, and with our future. In Jesus' name, amen.